Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. The term just transition originates from trade unions. So what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them. However, fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry, a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains, and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. How do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet? With the global pandemic and economic turmoil, the context of discussions around just transition are hugely different now. While jobs in many industries are looking precarious, jobs in the fossil fuel industry are more precarious than ever and workers' rights have come to a forefront. Talking about a just transition is therefore more important than ever. In this episode, we are sharing with you the first part of an interview we did with Annabel Pinker, a researcher from the James Hutton Institute. We are discussing one of the main focuses of her research, which is energy decentralisation, and how it could contribute to a just transition. Hi Annabelle, it's lovely to have you here today to chat with us. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. No, thank you. And the first question I'll ask is, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So what's the James Hutton Institute and what does it do? Yeah, sure. So I'll answer the first one first. Um, I'm a social anthropologist and for the last 10 or 15 years I've carried out research in a few different parts of the world um, only relatively recently actually in the UK um, previously I was working in Latin America in Peru and in Ecuador and my research interests over the years have focused particularly on the relationship between infrastructures like big infrastructural systems and socio-political change so my work has used ethnographic methods which is a kind of long-term research practice where you live with people often for quite long periods maybe a year a year and a half in order to understand how they do things um, on an everyday basis and to to really kind of look at the ways in which power technology expertise and everyday life change in the context of new infrastructures and socio-technical systems and in recent years that's particularly been big mega construction projects like roads and renewable energy schemes and I've been interested in what kinds of changes what kinds of transformation these big infrastructures bring about what kinds of experimental spaces they open up like how things can change in quite unexpected ways and the way that different people that are tied up in those sorts of projects try to bring about different kinds of transformation in their local lives through those sorts of infrastructures. I'm also interested in the sorts of uh, landscapes around those infrastructures, such as regulation, social and political contexts that change how 
they're implemented and the sorts of things that stand in the way of uh, those infrastructures being integrated effectively into local contexts. Um, so in the context of Scotland in recent years, I've been applying that sort of thinking in relation to big renewable energy projects. And particularly, I'm interested in the politics of energy decentralisation and renewable energy in general. So how we could begin to shift from highly centralised energy infrastructures to energy infrastructures which are more in the hands of local people, uh, managed by local people and owned by local people, ideally as well. And what kinds of possibilities there are for that sort of transformation and the sorts of issues that stand in the way of it and also the effects that uh, come about when local people actually do manage to take on these sorts of infrastructures, manage them for themselves, glean the benefits, both social and economic. So yeah, I think that would kind of cover what I've been doing for the last few years. Uh, in terms of the James Hutton Institute, uh, that is where I work now. Um, it's an institute which works across two sites, one in Aberdeen and the other one in Invergowrie and Dundee. And it basically emphasises or works particularly on uh, issues around crops, soils, land use and environmental research. And it aims to make a major contribution to understanding global issues such as food, energy and environmental security and developing and promoting new technological and management solutions for those sorts of domains. Thank you, that's really interesting to hear. Um, we're going to talk to you a little bit about energy decentralisation in a wee bit, but first of all, um, I'd like to ask you what a just transition means to you. I mean, it's, it's a term which has become very broad recently, so maybe it's better to begin by saying a little bit about where it came from, because it, it actually arose in fairly specific circumstances in the US labour movement in the 1970s. And since that time, particularly in the last, just in the last few years, it's kind of exploded a bit onto the international and policy scene, as I'm sure you know. So it's become a lot broader in meaning than what it used to be. Um, when, it, when it first was uh, beginning to circulate in the 1970s, it, there was a real interest basically in bringing the issues around um, how to render labour conditions for people, particularly in heavy industry and particularly in the coal industry, fairer. Um, and also in such a way as to ensure that there wasn't a contradiction with environmental concerns, but instead that environmental issues and labour issues could be addressed at the same time. Um, and that remains the case. The, the just transition term is still concerned with looking at the relationship between uh, environmental issues and labour. But I would say that uh, whereas in, in, at the end of the 20th century there was more of a focus on specific industries such as heavy industry and coal industry, now there are quite a few proponents of just, of just transition which are arguing for a much deeper, much more broad-based understanding of transformation which, is, uh, which really recognises that we've been living 
in many ways in a, in a deeply unjust, systemically unjust set of circumstances which are connected to the fact that we are dependent upon fossil fuels, but that it's not just a question necessarily of transferring people who are working within the fossil fuel industry into new jobs and reskilling them, but potentially actually looking at uh, very broad reaching forms of redistribution of wealth and rectification of deep-seated inequalities, structural inequalities that have arisen in our current system. And if you're asking me specifically what a just transition means to me in the sense of what I would like it to be, <laughs> then, uh, then I would be one of the proponents of the latter. I would want to see a much deeper understanding of just transition uh, one which really is looking to support uh, vulnerable people across the whole of the across the world in fact not just in the UK um, that recognizes that actually the forms of development that have allowed us to become very wealthy in many parts of the world are built on uh, forms of impoverishment and uh, colonization in other parts of the world but these are extremely complicated issues and it also would involve questioning to a large degree our own privilege and that's not a comfortable process. Um, so although I might seek, I might hope for that and that's how I would like to interpret just transition, of course, in many respects and the way that it's being applied in different domains at the moment, it, it isn't being seen in that way. Uh, so that's a slightly complicated answer <laughs> for you. But uh, yeah, I think, I, I think it's important to recognise that there are many different understandings of just transitions which are circulating now. That was excellent. Thank you very much for that, Annabelle. And we know that you study energy decentralisation, but we would first like to understand what the current landscape looks like. So how centralised is the energy system here in Scotland and also in the UK? And what's the issue with that? I would say that uh, the UK is one of the more centralised energy systems that you're likely to find. Um, Scotland and, uh, shares with the rest of the UK the same basic centralised grid infrastructure, um, which was basically built up in the 40s, 50s, 60s to distribute electricity to towns and cities from large nuclear and coal burning power generation plants that were situated relatively far away from population centers. And these are the networks that really we're grappling with now in wanting to bring in more decentralized energy systems, for example, building renewable energy schemes. Um, Actually, it's, it's not an easy process to start bringing in those sorts of decentralised energy technologies in the context of a system which up to now has been pretty decentralised in its form. So the centralised grid networks in Scotland and the rest of the UK are very much built around the stable loads arising from fossil fuels. And in order to switch to renewable energy in a more systematic way, those distribution and grid systems have to become much more flexible in order to accommodate forms of energies, renewable energies coming from sun, wind and water, which tend to be more fluctuating, more volatile and more geographically dispersed. Um, I mean, in technical terms, in terms of the sorts of issues that uh, come up with a highly centralised system, I mean, what, some of the obvious ones is that 
include the fact that you have lots of transmission losses. It's, they're not very efficient systems when they're centralized uh, because obviously energy is being carried over long distances. Um, you also don't necessarily have security of supply, as we know, but uh, the, the longer our supply chains, the more vulnerable our systems are. And, you know, obviously when we're sourcing energy from or, uh, fossil fuels, for example, from other parts of the world, then our systems are likely to be much less secure and much less reliable. Uh, though that doesn't seem to have been particularly an issue in this case, in, in the coronavirus case, obviously we're actually experiencing a glut of energy, which also actually is, is actually a problem for our national grid um, in the sense that prices have dropped and actually you have a, a lot of instability and we're seeing renewable energy suppliers who were unable to um, depend on the sorts of prices they're likely to get in the context of an energy glut. And so they can't rely on those prices and that obviously then hits their income, for example. So there are different sorts of instabilities that are coming into the system at the moment. Not, we don't have a lack of supply, we have too much and that can create problems with the national grid. Um, so there are a range of different technical reasons as to why uh, centralised energy systems uh, are problematic. Um, and of course, they're not only technical, um, as with so many uh, issues around energy, these are, these are very much uh, technical, social and political issues all at once. So clearly and arguably, if you have, uh, in the context of a, of a highly centralised system, you also tend to have um, big suppliers um, who control those energy infrastructures with less control uh, available for the people who use uh, the energy which is being generated and part of the argument of course for decentralized energy is that uh, instead of scenarios where we have just a few energy providers uh, holding all the key infrastructures and profiting from them those energy infrastructures could potentially be in the hands of, of local people, of communities who are able to develop the expertise to manage them and also to gain the economic benefits from selling that energy. And also, um, it can change things politically. I mean, and this, isn't, this doesn't just apply to energy, it applies to um, any sort of asset which is owned collectively. That when there's collective ownership of an asset, it, there's scope for a different kind of politics to enter in as well because when local people own local assets such as say a, a renewable energy park or a, a wind turbine scheme which is located on land which is near to them for example then they have a stake in what happens in the locality they have a stake in what happens to that energy and um, I would argue that that, that in turn dynamizes um, politics. So much, I would say that one of the problems that we have at the moment, we have this, uh, there's a real interest in democratization and people talk about procedures for supporting better democracy or more effective democracy, democracy where people feel closer to political decisions. But, but sometimes it seems that these sorts of debates are happening without really addressing the fact that a lot of people don't really feel like they own anything collectively. And I would say it's really crucial that um, in order to feel politically engaged, people also need to feel that they have a stake in the tangible resources that are actually around them. So that 
redistribution in a sense uh, has to be something that people can actually feel and touch and relate to um, assets buildings energy systems all these things could actually be in the hands of local people and actually then people will want to go i think perhaps want to go to uh, a local community hall and discuss what happens to these assets and and actually that is what seems to happen as we've seen in scotland the more local energy groups have sprung up they there has been um there have been reports from those sorts of uh, community organizations that have invested in local energy schemes that there has been a proportionate rise in interest from the locality because people have a stake in the decisions that are being made so yeah there are many different reasons i would say as to why energy decentralization is a good thing and why it would be good to phase out uh, energy centralization and, and, and actually of course in the context of you know energy centralization i think has it has to be clearly stated it's arisen in the context of a fossil fuel scenario coal oil lend themselves to centralization nuclear you know they take mega infrastructures they take a lot of expertise they demand uh, particular kinds of complex engineering and skills in the context of rene renewable energy what's so very different about it is that uh, renewable energy schemes are obviously of often located in completely different sorts of places to where you might locate a coal or fossil fuel power station um, so and scotland of course is very well placed for that we have a lot of wind some of the best wind in the whole of europe and actually many of the uh, of these sites are situated close to communities uh, which could have a stake in those in those sorts of systems so it's a very different scenario and it's one where because we're likely to be depending more and more on renewable energy in the future actually a decentralized energy system is the one that just simply makes sense even if we leave out the social and political debate uh, so again another long answer to your question but i hope that's relatively clear a long answer but a brilliant answer thank you so much um i was wondering are do you have any examples of where a decentralized energy system has worked well yeah i mean um actually scotland has has a few cases and one of one of the things that's uh, notable not just in scotland but in also in other parts of the world and in parts of europe um, is that some of the places that have had most success in terms of taking forward more decentralized energy systems are islands and um, places where you know due to the constraints of connection um, of actually not necessarily being able to, to connect to mainland energy systems uh, the communities on those on, on islands have had to look for alternative ways of generating electricity um, so there are lots there are a variety of different ways in which that that kind of thing is happening in Scotland and the islands are um, of Scotland are one of the key places where where they're happening so for example um, in parts of Scotland that lack a grid connection as on a number of islands some community-based organizations have established uh, fairly autonomous off-grid or microgrid systems through which electricity can be locally produced, stored and consumed. And one well-known example of that is the Isle of Egg on the west coast of Scotland. And uh, Orkney actually has also done quite a lot of, of work on that. Um, it's it's 
become partly because of the constraints on its it's unable to transfer all of the energy that it produces to the mainland because of the constraints on the interconnector that connects it to the mainland. And so they've had to find creative ways of making use of the excess of energy they have on the island for other purposes, such as electric vehicle charging points, um, a range of different uh, sort of creative ways in which they've come up with making use of, of energy in that sort of context. Um, elsewhere, where the grid is more readily accessible, energy initiatives have tried to install grid-connected community-owned wind turbines. So that's not decentralization in the classic sense, in the sense that you are completely sort of cut off from the mainland grid or a main grid, um, as on some of the islands. Um, but instead, the energy decentralization, if you like, takes a different form where it's about, it's more of a political decentralization or economic decentralization in that community organizations are setting up their own turbines and they gain income from, uh, from the energy which they generate through their, their community-owned turbines. So although they're still connected to the grid and they still rely on the grid infrastructure, um, they are generating an income which can then be used locally in creative ways. And there are ever-increasing number of communities that are doing that in Scotland. Um, and I would, Huntley, which is a, a community north of Aberdeen, but an hour north of Aberdeen, has very successfully set up its own community turbine, for example. And as a result of that, it's in the process, or I think has, uh, been able to buy uh, a community asset uh, or is currently buying I'm not quite sure what stage it's at which will in itself become another source of development and income for the locality so I would argue that for not necessarily seeing energy decentralization purely in in technical terms as a cutting off from the grid although that that is literally what it tends to mean, you know, where microgrids are set up in an island scenario where there's no means of receiving energy from the, main, the mainland grid or sending it over. Um, but I would say that other forms of energy decentralization are happening where it's actually about communities playing a role in energy production in a way that until recently hasn't been happening. So I would argue for quite a broad understanding of energy decentralization, uh, arguing for it as a, as a kind of evolving form of redistribution of, of, energy, um, of energy infrastructure, if you like, on, in different domains, socially, politically, and also technically. And all these things matter. We, we, there are other parts of the world where certainly I think there, there are more radical things perhaps going on, um, but I think we're making good progress in Scotland. And how does this decentralised energy system form part of a just transition? So what impact would it have on jobs, for example? It could potentially be a really key part, depending on how broadly we interpret a just transition. So... On the one hand, if a just transition in Scotland, say, were to happen, which were pretty focused on fossil fuel communities, for example, on ensuring that workers within the oil industry were able to move into different sorts of jobs, 
then actually having an energy system, for example, that was more in the control of Scotland, where there were, for example, rather than what we've seen in Fife with the, the construction of parts of wind turbines being contracted out to Indonesia, or I think that's where it was, rather than being built, say, in Scotland itself, um, but it's not exactly about decentralization, but it is about saying, well, actually, how about we just bring different parts of the manufacturing process and servicing process together so that it's actually possible for us to, to do all of that in Scotland. So that would be one relatively conservative way in which revamping how energy production happens without these long supply chains could be beneficial to Scotland. But in terms of a just transition, which was really more ambitious than seeking to shift from fossil fuel uh, dominated energy production through to really looking at the possibility of restructuring our society around very, very different bases where there was less of a preoccupation with economic growth and we started orientating ourselves more towards principles of well-being and care um, then I also think that uh, as I've said before that moving towards a system where assets including energy infrastructures are owned by communities and regions and local authorities say would in general be extremely beneficial in terms of ensuring a wider distribution of wealth as any income arising from that sort of redistribution would potentially ensure that local communities and local areas could uh, support their own communities more effectively. So the more that passes, more in terms of assets that passes from large uh, energy providers to local areas and to local authorities, the more it will be possible for uh, the benefits from those assets to be redistributed according to need. So in, in a very simple way, that's how I see that energy decentralization would support a just transition that was wide ranging in its ambition. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the social, material and political processes which um, you know, facilitate our movement towards energy decentralisation. Um, you've spoken about it a little bit, but I was wondering if you could just expand on that a little. I think whenever you're looking at these sorts of complex socio-technical systems such as energy, uh, there are always different parts in play. There's the, there are social dimensions, material dimensions and political dimensions, economic dimensions, technical dimensions, and they're all extremely entangled with each other. So when I refer to the social, you one might be talking about the sorts of social spaces in which uh, particular energy systems unfold. So what sorts of social structures, uh, what sort of sorts of collective structures are set up, um, what sorts of social practices uh, are involved in the sorts of energy systems that we have at the moment? What effects, for example, does it have uh, on our social structures to be operating in a, in a fossil fuel based system? And 
one interesting case that I've looked at uh, on quite a small scale is a place called Skorig, which is on the west coast of Scotland. And uh, it's a place which is very unusual because it's a, a peninsula where there are around 80 households, many of whom, or the majority of whom, are reliant um, in at least in part on individually owned wind turbines, which originally were handcrafted, made out of scrap, and which form part of their, their basic energy infrastructure on the peninsula in the absence of a grid connection. And one of the interesting things has been sort of looking at what effect it has when each household has its own wind turbine. Um, socially, people relate to each other very differently. They rely on each other very differently. They have to borrow parts from each other. They need to um, interact in different ways with each other in order to ensure that they share expertise, uh, skills, in order to keep that system going. Um, it also means that they relate to their environment in very different ways. People relate to nature very differently because they have to make sure that they have enough wind to be able to cook their chicken. So they will look at the sea and they'll check whether there are any white caps on the waves in order to ensure that there's enough wind outside to keep them going for the next couple of hours if they want to if they're wanting to roast their chicken in their chicken oven so that's what i mean by the social there's this sense that energy systems are integrated into the way that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to our environment and when I talk about material processes, yeah, I'm talking about the sorts of technologies themselves. And Skorig is a, another very good example of that. Um, because the, we often have this idea uh, that comes through uh, when we talk about energy systems that they're meant to be really efficient, they're meant to be very clean and streamlined, all these things. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about Skorig is actually that there's a kind of celebration of matter. There's a celebration of... Uh, you might even say a, a celebration of the kinds of messiness of energy production, potentially, you know, that you have uh, these wind turbines were originally made out of scrap metals and telegraph poles that were found in scrapyards. And um, they were run on batteries that were sourced from uh, old four by fours and jeeps and things like that and cobbled together in these new ways. And uh, Hugh Piggott, who was the kind of key protagonist, not the only protagonist, but really the key protagonist, who has been building these turbines for 40 years now, um, he would really celebrate the qualities of the materials themselves. You know, he would talk about the way that rust that built up on the towers of the turbines actually could be quite useful because it formed this sort of protective patina that protected the the metal from, from environmental, you know, from the wind, from, from rain, all these sorts of things. Quite often in our very modern, you know, in, in sort of dominant sort of understandings of where we should be getting to with, with energy, there's often this understanding that they have to become very, very minimalist and out of sight and infrastructure should be hidden away. The workings of, of how we make electricity should be sort of, should slightly disappear from view. Whereas uh, on Skorik, there was a kind of celebration of, of all the paraphernalia, uh, the batteries, the, 
the cables, the, the complexity of setting up different energy systems. And there was a lot of enjoyment about it. So that's another, yeah, we, there are different kinds of materialities that are associated with particular energy systems. And our grid system is often associated with invisibility. There is this sense that things should be big and we shouldn't get too close to them. Whereas Scurrig, in a way, is, is kind of showing us what it might be like if we lived in more intimate arrangements with our own forms of energy production. We maybe had to tinker with those cables every day. Maybe we shouldn't take them for granted so easily. You know? And then political processes. Yeah, there's a politics, as, as I've already talked about before. There's a politics that comes with different kinds of energy systems. I mean, if you do have big pylons and big power stations, then you're more likely to have big energy providers that, uh, that control them. And what would it be like, actually, if we had energy systems which were more differentiated, that did function differently, that were more built around um, community aspirations and varied accordingly? You know, so um, and when you have an asset like an energy scheme, which is in the hands of a community, then uh, there are new kinds of political processes and procedures which need to be put into place to manage it. You know, how do you distribute the wealth from that? How do you learn how to manage it? How do you think about expertise locally? All these sorts of things require political structures. So I think the point I'm making with this, with these different dimensions to infrastructure, these social, material and political dimensions, is really to draw attention to the fact that it's not just a technical process, but actually energy infrastructures are very complex systems which entail a whole variety of different parts of our lives and that that needs to be acknowledged and not hidden away in this idea that somehow it's just something for engineers and nobody else. That was excellent thank you very much for that um, and so you've spoken a bit about the advantages and opportunities presented by a decentralized energy system but could you give us an idea of the main barriers to this type of system in Scotland? We have quite a rigid centralized grid system uh, which means that for example if a community group wanted to build its own wind turbine and connect it to the grid in order to gain an income which is one of the most common ways uh, for gaining community ownership they sometimes have to pay large amounts of money in order to connect to that grid system um, and they're the ones that would be charged rather than it's not the grid it's not the grid uh, operator that that pays for that connection. It's the it's the community or organisation or landowner or whoever it might be that wants to join it. So the onus is on the the developer. And obviously, in the case of community organisations, that's a real problem potentially because it's not it's not as though they're an EDF or an energy provider that has the capacity with you know with the the resources and the uh the capital simply to to come in with that sort of money so um that's just an example so costs and the sorts of planning regulations uh that they come up against can be real issues for communities when they're operating with limited funds there are organizations that are, uh, are supportive and uh, the cares program which has been set up by the scottish government 
for example, has been absolutely crucial for community organisations that have been wanting to get community energy schemes off the ground because they provide uh, loans and grants at the outset to enable them to to get their their original proposals going, to get this to buy in the sorts of expertise uh, that they need at the outset to put in their development plans uh, to the planning system. But I think the amount, the top amount that's available through that is something around 100,000, which may sound like quite a lot of money, but actually in the context of developing a scheme, it's actually not very much. And so many uh, community energy schemes that are begun sometimes can't be completed because of lack of funds. The other thing is that community energy organisations don't necessarily have access to land and they might try to rent land from local landowners in order to develop it for a renewable energy scheme. Um, But quite frequently that land may already have been optioned uh, by that landowner uh, to develop their own (laughs) private uh, wind energy scheme. So communities that don't have access to land are going to struggle um, that bit more uh, in order to install their own scheme. So that those are just a couple of examples um, but I would say that cost, regulation and land are some of the key issues that communities and localities interested in developing their own systems are facing because really I sh- to clarify the onus is really on on the communities to do this there are although the scottish government has been very supportive in terms of its narratives uh, and its policies there isn't really enough in place yet to really ensure that there's a whole tide of community development in energy there needs to be a much more um, supportive regulatory environment local planning environment um, more money available for communities to do this so although there's movement i would say that the the barriers are are very strong still that's great that's really interesting to hear about all the the different challenges so just like to ask what other research areas have you been working on recently most recently i've spent about a year on the isle of lewis where i was doing research on a group particularly on a group of crofters and who were um, opposing a big scheme and it's still actually unfolding this debate now uh, which was being planned uh, by the energy company EDF on the island. It was going to be a, a wind energy scheme of around 36 turbines and a group of crofters on the Isle of Lewis had been opposing the construction of this scheme on the basis that they didn't want to see a commercially owned energy scheme on the island. They wanted any wind energy scheme of that sort of scale to be owned by the crofters themselves. So it was a really interesting debate and I saw it as an opportunity to sort of look at the ways in which the sorts of negotiations that were happening around how energy transition is being thought about and managed and negotiated in this particular part of Scotland because it seemed to me a very interesting case where crofters were not only attempting to contest the moral legitimacy of a project uh, such as EDFs 
also its legal legitimacy because they were contesting the fact that it was going to be built on common grazing's land, which is land which is owned, if you like, or used, not owned, but used collectively by crofters to graze their sheep. And also to really pose or propose a different vision for the future around how energy could be produced and managed in the Western Isles and, you know, obviously beyond that in a sense. I think there was a a real ambition to have an influence on the sorts of debates around how energy should be produced and, and used and who should gain the benefits from it. So I was really looking at the legal, political and social debates that were emerging around that. And it was it was a fascinating case in many ways because it's coming at a time when crofting, the practice of crofting, which is this a, a way of uh, of doing um, land use and of sharing land, which basically depends on local people having particular plots of their own, if you like, where they can develop their own um, their own holdings and have their own sheep but also where they have access to large amounts of communally used land. Um, That whole system is transforming at this time due to other pressures, due to the fact that actually people are are much less dependent on sheep than they used to. There's much less interest in crofting practices in certain ways. But there is an interest, in a growing interest, in using land differently, perhaps not so much for sheep, uh, but perhaps for wind turbines. (laughs) or for other kinds of infrastructure. And so there's, it's a very interesting uh, series of transitions which are happening at the same time, if you like, on the Western Isles around energy, but also around how land is used. And I really wanted to study both those things at the same time, how these two debates were crossing over each other and the new kinds of, um, I guess, struggles over the future and what it should look like um, how that was being negotiated on the Isle of Lewis. So it's, it's a very interesting case, and I'm very much still in the thick of going through the material that's come out of that period of fieldwork. Wow, that sounds very interesting. I had no idea that was going on. And, and super interesting because normally if someone's opposing um, any sort of renewable energy, I think of it as like nimbyism, but this is totally rooted in justice. So yeah, it sounds really cool. Has there been an outcome? Or, like, was it taken to the courts? Has there been any sort of outcome or is it still ongoing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, is, it is ongoing. Um, it's, it has been taken to the courts. It went to the Scottish Land Court um, and actually... They didn't rule in the in favour of the uh, of the crofting communities, but the crofting communities are, as as far as I understand it so far, they are intending to take it to the court of session. Um, however, the other thing that's happened is that the EDF project did not receive. Um, it competed in the the bid that was happening for offshore wind. Um, and it didn't receive a subsidy. It wasn't granted a subsidy. So that means that its financial basis for going ahead is seriously compromised. And at the moment, I'm not sure where it stands. There, are, I've, yeah, I, it may be better if I don't say very much because I don't really, I'm not really sure what what ground it's on. But I, one thing I do want to say, so it may still go ahead, but we just don't know um, 
if EDF does choose to take it ahead, then I'm sure that there will be further contestation in the court. Um, but I think the other point to make is, is that the crofters themselves have put their own wind turbine scheme proposals in. So not only are they opposing it, they are also uh, they have also come up with their own proposals for the site, the same site which EDF wants to build on. And they have received planning permission for at least a few of those. And that is, you know, very interesting and exciting for them because it, it indicates that they have the expertise and the capacity to take large scale projects forward. And that was one of one of the goals of the group. So it's an interesting case, partly because it really isn't about NIMBYism. They are interested in taking forward wind energy themselves, just that they want it to be owned by them. And um, I think that, um, you know, energy decentralisation as part of a just transition is a really exciting prospect in terms of community and worker empowerment. So let's just hope that there is greater appetite for this in future. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to speak to you today. Thanks very much for having me. So, yes, again, thank you so much, Annabelle, for speaking with us today about your research. It was really interesting to hear about it. This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. This podcast is supported by the Erasmus Plus programme of the European Union, with thanks also to Scottish Communities Climate Action Network.